Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Very good. Very good. We're going to jump right in, and this is a bit of a, an extension from what we talked about last week, as I shared with you. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about this fascinating passage of Scripture in John 19, uh, verses 28 and 30. And it's in this passage that we, we hear Jesus' infamous line that it is finished. The Scripture tells us that after Jesus, he's hanging on the cross at this point, right? After Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, goes on to say, it is finished, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And we spent some time looking at what it meant for Jesus to to do this. The word uh, that is representing the phrase, it is finished, it's actually one word in the Greek. And that word is teleo. And it's the word, uh, again, that historians have found that people would write on a bill of sale. If somebody, somebody paid something in full, they would write teleo. It was the same thing as paid, right? So it means paid, it means accomplished, it means finished. And Jesus declares something very bold here, that everything God set him to do was finished at this point. And that's fascinating because, of course, we think of the future things that he, has, uh, he had yet to do, right? He hadn't risen from the dead at this point. Uh, he hadn't ascended to the right hand of the Father and given the Holy Spirit as a helper. But still, uh, nonetheless, Jesus says all things, or the Scripture says, all things had been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, two chapters earlier in John 17, where we have Jesus' high priestly prayer recorded, Jesus even prays in that moment to his father and says, I have done everything you've asked me to do. I've fulfilled it all. And it's in that kind of fulfillment, he, he just says, it is finished. He says, teleo. And it's a powerful thing, but it's understanding it that matters. Last week, I told you that an unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. And sometimes we, we celebrate Easter and we just fail to realize that Jesus has accomplished anything and everything that God had set him to do. Now, the thing that we focused on last week was found in Hebrews chapter 9, and there's more about that in Hebrews 10 if you feel uh, you want to jump into those passages of Scripture. But one of the things that Jesus accomplishes with his blood being shed for us is not just the forgiveness of our sins. That is true. But he has also washed our consciences clean. And so this is a kind of a bold thing and a big deal for all of us because that's a prison for a lot of people. This past week, I had the, the privilege of talking to several different people about uh, the message last week and how uh, on one end, it was very encouraging to many people. They, were, they want to feel that freedom of their conscience being clean. At the same time, it was also a, uh, an honor to be able to talk to people who struggle with feeling that their conscience is clean. How many of you would say that that's you? Sure, the Bible says it. The Bible says that Jesus did it, but it's a hard thing for us to trust and to believe. Well, first thing that I want you to understand is that this is really something that has to be taken by faith. And faith needs to be understood in its biblical Uh, context and not in the world's misdefining of faith. Uh, Faith, contrary to atheists and popular thinkers today, faith is not the belief in something you know doesn't exist. That's what people say today. Faith is just the belief in something you know doesn't exist. Faith is not defined that way in scripture. 
according to the scripture of faith, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, which means that faith has substance and faith has evidence. But one of the challenges that we have when it comes to faith is understanding what that substance or what that evidence is. When faith is trusting in God and you're trusting in something of substance, it's like what we just sang in that last song. Uh, If God declares something, if God promises something, that is the substance that we are holding to, we are trusting, and we are walking in. Amen? So if God declares that you are free indeed, guess what? You're free indeed. Guess what? If God says that your conscience is clean, your conscience is clean. Now that still doesn't make it any easier for us to hold on to. It's just that that's what faith means. Faith is trusting in some substance. And many times the substance we're trusting in is the very word of God where he says, I promise you this is true. And that's, that's beautiful. I want that. I do this with people in my life, right? Somebody gives me a promise. Somebody tells me, gives me their word. And I trust that. So in some sense, biblically, I suppose, I am putting faith in them. I'm putting trust in them. And this is what we're called to do. So I do want to give you some practical advice, though, if you do struggle with your conscience uh, or struggle with the belief that your conscience is clean. And that is understand two things. Number one, number one, your mind needs to be renewed every day. It needs to be renewed every day because we are prone to forgetting and especially the promises of God. So the scripture tells us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And God is willing to do that. That's something that he is doing. We just simply have to surrender to that. So let your mind be renewed on a daily basis. I believe that you do that through studying his word and through prayer and through meditating on who he is and what he has said. Okay, so that's, that's one piece that you need to have your mind renewed. The other piece is... Be aware that you are in a spiritual battle. Okay? Now, this is not to say that there's a devil behind every bush. Okay? And it is also not to say that the devil is omnipresent or omniscient like God is. He is surely not. Right? This goes really far when it comes to uh, the way many churches think. I saw a really cool meme the other day that said, um, that said the devil is not busy, church. Your sound system just sucks. I, I love that one, right? So, so it, it would be really problematic if the devil was in every church messing with every sound system. But guess what we do when that's the case? We actually make the devil like God. He's everywhere. He knows all things. Not so much. But it would be a mistake for you to think that we don't have a very real enemy. We have a very real enemy. And the scripture is true when it says that he is prowling around seeking those whom he may devour. We might not be high on his list, but he's got plenty of minions and other things, I'm sure, that he can uh, try to seek after people with. Right? And this battle is, is a spiritual battle, but that battle is waged on the battlefield of our mind and our heart. And it's just constantly going, all the time. Right? So two things, renew your mind every day or let your mind be renewed by God, be it, let it be transformed, and then know that you have a really a serious battle. 
The enemy has one playbook move, one move in his playbook. And that move is, did God really say? He doesn't know how to do anything else. He's really stupid, actually, right? Okay? And he knows one playbook, and he says, did God really say? And if you walk around saying, I am free indeed, and my conscience is clear, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the only thing the devil has to play with is, did God really say that? And your answer is, "Uh uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, in Jesus' name, right? Okay, so that'll work, right? It's, it's a really important way to say it, right? So, so John 19 says that uh, Jesus on the cross says, declares that it is finished. But what Jesus did, apart from cleaning our conscience, is such an amazing thing. And today I want to talk to you about uh, the tabernacle. I'm also going to blend that with the temple because they, they are... Uh, they are one in the same in one sense, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here uh, in just a second. So we're going we're gonna to go through some pieces of Hebrews 9 again, and then we're going to jump into a lot of other stuff on a, on a bit of a deeper level. But I, but I have made this message extremely practical, just like last week's. I want, you to, I want you to take away something that encourages you and makes you want to jump up and down because of who you are in Christ Jesus. But there's a principle that I need you to understand as we venture into this, and the principle principle is this, that there is a difference when you're reading the Bible, when you're trying to interpret the Bible, there is a difference between the Bible conveying information or the writers of the Bible trying to convey information and the writers of the Bible trying to interpret life and events through what they're saying. Okay? There is a difference. The conveyance of information can be very detailed. It can give you all kinds of precision in it. And the interpretation, although it has a lot to say, is more interested in how you're supposed to understand a text, not the mincing of words. And I think we get really distracted sometimes when we shouldn't, and we get really loose when we should when we should care. So to give you an example of this, uh, Genesis, the creation account, is, an, is a matter of interpretation, not conveyance. Now that's going to be challenging for some of you. You're like, no, Nathan, <laughs> no. The Bible says lots of information and I believe every single word of it. I want you to believe every single word of it. But I want you to understand that the way Genesis was written, the, the genre of literature, the point, the purpose of the author was not to give you a scientific account of the creation of the world. He wasn't trying to do it. What he was trying to do was he was trying to interpret something that was going to wreck the world as he knew it. Moses is living in Mesopotamia in the, you know, the, the Near East, the, the ancient Near East, and he's living in this world in which there are many creation narratives. There are many myths about lots of different things, and they're saying, our God did it, our God did it, our gods did it, all this other stuff. All of a sudden, Moses comes out, they come out of Egypt, they're delivered from this, and this scripture is given, and the scripture says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. What is the point of Genesis? The point of Genesis was actually to tell you, not all your gods did this. My God did. But we don't care about that for some reason, and we get lost in the minutia and start throwing, it, throwing stuff at each other left and right. You're not understanding it right. You're not understanding it right. 
And so we get this way, right? Because this principle is, is alive and active. We think it's conveyance when it's interpretation. Same thing happens with Noah and the flood. Everybody in the ancient Near East knew that there, there, there was a flood. You know how I know this? Because every people group has a flood narrative. This is not something fundamentalist Christians made up. <laughs> okay? There was a flood. Can you say that with me? There was a flood. Okay. Now, the scope of that flood, we can debate that all day long. Right? We can debate where it was, global, local, whatever. We can debate those things. But what we have to understand is the whole purpose of the flood narrative was captured again in Scripture to interpret something. And here's what it interpreted. Man had fallen from God, and God enacted justice. That was the interpretation. The other narratives don't say that. The other narratives don't get to this point. But God, Elohim, who created the heavens and the earth, also saw his creation, his image bearers, not reflect his image and disobey him. And then he made a judgment. And then he preserved a remnant alive to restore and to rebuild his great world. Some people argue with this and they go, they go there's a lot of detail, Nathan, though. There's a lot of detail in these stories. And I struggle, why would you put so much detail if the detail didn't matter? Have you guys ever read the parable of the prodigal son? You've heard me teach it a million times, right? You've heard every preacher teach it a million times. Anyway, so the prodigal son story. You know how many details are in that story? A lot of details in that story. You know how much of that story is true? Zero percent. It's a parable. It's a story. Jesus made up a fable. And communicated truth through it. But do we sit and fight over the words in that story? We shouldn't. Because we get the point, right? There are many stories that have lots of detail. But the point is not the detail. The point is the point, right? And discovering that is important. Same thing happens in Hebrews 9. Same thing happens. In Exodus, we have the conveyance of information about the tabernacle, about the temple, all kinds of details, curtains and rods and this and that and everything in between. But Hebrews 9 comes in and says, now we're going to interpret everything. Now we're going to interpret everything. And the interpretation is where we come with this powerful illustration, this powerful image that what we see on earth is a copy of what took place in heaven. And that's powerful. That everything we've seen, Jesus didn't enter into a tabernacle made with human hands. No. He entered into the real tabernacle, which was the presence of God. And that was the point of Hebrews 9 and most of Hebrews, right? It's to interpret the reality of what's happening. So when we see things like now, verse 1 of Hebrews 9, says now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. What is this? As we know from last week, it's a shadow. It's a shadow of something bigger. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one. So, so guys, there's, there's two, or two uh, setups within the, the temple. You have the outer court. I suppose that would be three, but the outer court goes anywhere, right? The outer court, you have the outer temple, outer tabernacle, which would be the holy place. And then you have the most holy place, right? 
the inner sanctuary, okay? And so this is the second one. But all of this imagery matters because it's just simply a copy of what took place in heaven, okay? This is interpretation of the conveyance that happened way long time ago, right? Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstands and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Verse 3. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. So two tabernacles. The word tabernacle there is simply the word for tent. Verse 4. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, In which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Verse 5. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Why can't we speak of them in detail? Because all this stuff is long gone. There was a theory among Jews that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. But it just doesn't, it's not there, right? Um, We don't have Aaron's staff that budded. We have discrepancies in the text here that are challenging. For example, the golden table of incense. The the writer of Hebrews says specifically, if you want to get into conveyance, you're going to have a problem. But if you want to get into interpretation, you will understand it. So conveyance, he says, he says that the golden table of incense belonged to the Holy of Holies. You know what Exodus 30 says? It doesn't belong to the Holy of Holies. It belongs outside of it. And the priest used it on a daily basis. Well, how's that possible if it's on the inside of the Holy of Holies and only one person can enter there once per year? You see the problem? If you go to conveyance, you're going to have a big problem. It also says that there's a golden jar of manna. A golden jar of manna. You know where we got the idea of a golden jar of manna? We got that from the Septuagint, which is the only one that says the golden jar of manna is there. The Masoretic text doesn't include gold. It doesn't say anything about what the, the jar is made out of. But if you want to get obsessed with conveyance, you're going to have all kinds of problems in the text of Scripture. But if you understand that it is intending to interpret something, it changes it. So what does this mean for us? It means that the thing we're supposed to focus on is the comparisons, the contrasts, and the typology. The imagery that is being reflected here. Okay? So what happens is that there is this grand uh, outer court. Okay? That actually, whether, whether you know this or not, and you'll see this in just a second, that actually is the world. Okay, and then you have the the holy place, which is uh, which is this place where the priests did their duty. They did their worship. They constantly praised God and and did all of these sacrifices and things like this as their acts of worship. And then you have the most holy place. This is just a set apart location where God met with His people. This is where heaven touched earth, according to the ideas of the tabernacle. So what happens with Jesus is that he enters this most holy place just like the high priest would do once per year. But the high priest did it once per year, every year, for the sins of himself and for the sins of the people which were committed in ignorance. Jesus enters the most holy place, the actual one, not the copy, and he makes a sacrifice once for all and all of us are cleansed because of this beautiful act, right? Okay? And when you read Hebrews 9 and you read Hebrews 10, all of a sudden, 
through the lens of interpretation, you read it and you go, oh, I see what's happening here. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is not just a human high priest. We're the priests. We're a royal priesthood, but we're not high priests. We don't engage in that way, but Jesus does for us. There needs to be blood for sacrifice, and Jesus did it. Hebrews 10 goes on to say that that veil that was torn, you know, this thing that was rent on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, we look at that and we go, ah, that, that was a real thing. Shadow, copy, copy of something in heaven. And what was the thing in heaven? Hebrews 10 says that the veil is Jesus' flesh. That's the real thing. He's destroyed for us, or he is bruised and broken, all of this for our sins and our iniquities. So what we have is a a deep dive in interpretation of what is going on here. But the thing I want you to focus on with regard to interpretation today is this idea of the temple. And this is where this whole story gets unbelievably practical. And it has massive implications for you. For me, every person in this room that calls themselves a Christian. In order to understand the ideas of the temple, what we have to do is we have to kind of drop ship ourselves into the middle of the story. That's where the detail comes. That's where the conveyance of the information comes. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the beginning where we're going to see a right interpretation. And then we'll come to present day where we'll also see practical application in our life. So here's what happens with regard to the temple. The temple had a specific function, and if you want to find the temple's function, the best place to find it is actually found in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is where uh, Solomon is praying a, a blessing over the temple. He's consecrating the temple for its functions. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, it says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth You think about how absurd that idea is, right? The infinite God is going to dwell on something that's so finite. But kind of, right? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. I love when people go, God can't be contained in earthly vessels. God can't be contained in this. God can't even be contained in the heavens, (laughs) right? That would mean that the heavens are greater than God. And Solomon says, nope, not so much. Heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And yet he prays. And this is what he prays. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Then, verses 29 and 30, he says, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day. What is Solomon asking for? Solomon is asking for a place where heaven meets earth, right? He's asking for a place where God will dwell with his people in some way. Now, there's something broken about this dwelling because we're sinful people. We're broken, and we have uh, violated our king. But he wants, this, he wants this merger. So he says, Lord, I, I mean, you can't even be contained by the heavens. Please at least give your attention towards this place that I've built for you. As a matter of fact, the place that you want it, right? So he goes and says, that your eyes may be open towards this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. 
when they pray towards this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Heaven is meeting earth in the temple, in the tabernacle. Okay, this is the temple, but this is where the tabernacle overlaps, right? What were the temple functions? What was happening in this? Well, first of all, we see in verses 31 through 32 of this same chapter, we see that uh, God will judge the innocent and guilty in response to their oaths or their violations of those oaths. Okay, this is something where heaven meets earth and God does judging, verses 31 and 32. Verses 33 and 34 speak of deliverance in response to confession. God will deliver you if you confess your sins. Well, this sounds fascinating. Sounds just like the New Testament, doesn't it? The next thing is that the temple in verse 35 through 40 was a place where you prayed and you asked God to end calamity. Pestilence and plague and famine and all of these things, right? Verses 41 through 43 was a responding to foreigners. And I want, you to hear, uh, I want you to hear this text because I just find it to be absolutely beautiful. This is what we should, uh, we should be telling the world, church, when it comes to who our God is and what he wants for the foreigner. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 41, says this, Also, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel... When he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. See, this is the purpose of the temple. It was supposed to be a place from which all the glory of God goes out and everybody in the world hears of it. And what do they do? They make a pilgrimage. They come and they want to engage with the God of the universe, right? Then in verses 44 through 45, we have victory and deliverance with regard to war. And then in 46 through 53, we have, again, deliverance from captivity. So a a captivity actually uh, done by foreign armies or something like this, right? So taking Israel captive. So we drop ship ourselves in the middle of the story because we have to understand why the temple existed. Because if we went to the beginning, we actually miss it. We miss it. We just think, because here's what we do, we think Genesis is doing conveyance and not interpretation of events, and we look at it and we go, I don't know what that's saying. Uh, There's a lot of details there, and I'll make it say this, and I'll make it say that, and I'll make it say this, and we'll argue with each other over scientific matters that it's not talking about, and we get lost. So when we jump to the middle of the story, we then get to go back to the beginning and see what's happening. You see, I've shared this many times with you, but the garden and Eden were representative of God's temple. They were the first place in which heaven met earth. God literally walked with his people, right? And so what happens, and most of us only know the stories from kids' church, and so we hear things like the garden of Eden right? The Garden of Eden. If you really slow down and think about how that sentence is structured, you'll realize that it is of Eden, not the Garden Eden. That is that the garden that was located within Eden is the most holy place. 
This is where Adam is formed. This is where all of the trees and every abundance is made so that the high priest, Adam and Eve, priests to the world, they were taken care of. The bread of the presence, it's there. God has given them absolutely everything that they need pertaining to life, right? He's given it all to them. And then we have the, the, the holy place, which would be the garden. And what are they supposed to do with that? Reflect God's glory into it, tend it, keep it, all of this stuff, right? And then you have the outer court, which is where they go to transform the entire world. This is the image that is happening. So you have the holy of holies, you have the holy place, Eden, right? And then you have the outer court. You have the entire world. And heaven meets earth constantly. And heaven meets earth constantly. And there's this great union. It's a beautiful thing. But then the fall occurs. And what is the punishment? Well, man's going to you know, going to work the ground and it's going to be really frustrating. Well, that's, that's a curse. That's a part of it. A woman's going to have increased pain in childbearing. Make sure you hear that. Increased pain in childbearing. Not pain in childbearing. Pain existed before the fall, right? Why? Pain's a wonderful indicator that something's wrong. Did you know that? Pain's not always bad. So what happens? Those things are curses, but that's not the problem. The problem with the fall is that we broke something. We broke fellowship. Heaven meets earth, but we can't meet heaven anymore. We can't commune with our God. We are sinful, broken, distant people, right? And the only way that this is going to work is if something changes. By the way, there was a story given to change it. What was the story? Jesus, right? He's going to change the whole story. He's going to come. And what is he going to do? He's going to be the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies and does it right. Not the way Adam does it, right? The second Adam who does it right. So then we fast forward from the garden, which God had intended, heaven meeting earth. We fast forward to the tabernacle, which was uh, a pilgrimage through, through the wilderness for the Israelites until the temple was built. And I believe the reason why the writer of Hebrews focuses on the tabernacle and not the temple is because it really speaks interpretation-wise of the... Um, of the illusory nature of this place where heaven meets earth. It's temporary, and it keeps moving, right? Okay? And so we're always traveling after God. We're always wanting these things. But now we have a temple, and it seems awesome. But according to Solomon, the only thing God's going to do is look towards it and hear it. But it's still a meeting of heaven and earth, right? But then there's this really amazing change that happens. The amazing change that happens is that Jesus comes in and he makes claims that are absolutely absurd. Jesus is not just the high priest. Jesus is the very temple itself. In John chapter 2, focusing on verse 19, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, guys, on those slides. But John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answers the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is after Jesus had turned uh, the tables in the temple and they were asking him what authority he's doing this by, right? And he doesn't really answer the question. He just simply comes in and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And just after that, he clarifies what it means. Jesus meant this was his body. So what is the temple now? What is the temple? Come on. 
It's Jesus' body here, right? Very important thing. What happens in Jesus' body? Heaven meets earth. That's why he is incarnate. That is also why he's the only way to the Father, church. It's not, it's not just weird nonsense that God creates and goes, let's make this really difficult for people, right? I want one way and it's going to be complicated because the world's confused and messed up. I'm going to make this difficult. No, there's one way to the Father because he is the very temple where heaven and earth meet. He's the one, and it becomes the veil of his flesh through which we enter into that presence, right? Very beautiful picture. This is why only Jesus can say it is finished. It's why only Jesus can say it's paid. Why only Jesus can say it's complete, it's done. He's the one, right? But the story gets really crazy after that. Story gets really crazy because the scripture goes on to say that we are two things. We are not only the bride of Christ, but we are his body, right? But if Christ's body is the temple, what does that make us? It makes us the temple, doesn't it? Now you're like, this sacrilegious nonsense, Nathan. But trust me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You. You. Where heaven meets earth. Does that sound cool? Does it feel cool all the time? No. Okay. So, right? Your body is a temple. Paul goes on in Ephesians and says this. This is really powerful too. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Wait a second. What did God do with us? The very thing that Solomon prayed for. Those foreigners were brought in and made a part of the family. Right? Isn't that amazing? Everything he said up to this point, guys, has been true. If you interpret it. If you think it's conveyance, you're going to miss some things at times. Right? So. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into, say it with me, church, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into, say it again, a dwelling of God. In the spirit. You see, guys, in the garden, heaven met earth. The fall separates heaven and earth. It breaks the bond. God gives a temporary thing, a shadow, a copy in the tabernacle and the temple. But the real thing is actually in God's presence. That's the real thing. And guess where Jesus goes to make atonement for mankind? He goes to the real place. And he offers himself once for all, and it's done. But then he does this magnificent thing, and he says, you're now a part of my body, which means you are temples of my Holy Spirit, which means it is in you that all of those things about the temple come true. Check this out. Judging the innocent and guilty in response to their oaths. Why is it that Paul says, guys, 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 why do you take your legal cases before the world? 
Shouldn't you be able to judge this stuff for yourself? We should be able to. We don't, right? We backbite. We fight with each other. We're, we're always doing this. But what is happening when heaven meets earth in the temple of God? Right judgment can be made. It's pretty powerful. Number two, deliverance in response to confession. Confess your sins and he will be faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Because guess where that happens? In the temple of God. It was always supposed to be that way from the beginning. Ending calamity. There is a day, I know that it's not yet, but there is a day in which all the wrongs will be made right. All of the sickness will be gone. All of the death will be canceled. Isn't that cool? Where does that start to happen? In the temple of God. Right? This is why Jesus says, uh, the scripture says, and these signs will accompany those who follow me. We're supposed to be the bringers of the antithesis of calamity, right? The reversal of that. Do we always do it? No, but, but we're the start of it. Why? The temple of God. Next, we respond to foreigners. <laughs> Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Go into all the world, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. What are we doing? We're telling of the fame of Almighty God, and what do people want to do in light of that? They want to run to him. Heaven wants to meet earth. Earth wants to meet heaven, rather. Victory and deliverance in war. Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. No, it actually says, insofar as it depends on you, make sure you wave that don't tread on me banner as loud and proud as you can. Nope, it doesn't. Do you fight for your country? Sure, it's not a problem. I understand what the deal is there. There's governments for a purpose. But please understand, insofar as it depends on us, we're supposed to be heaven meeting earth here. Victory over this kind of war and pain. And deliverance from captivity. Neither death nor life, neither principalities nor powers, height, depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Temple of God. Heaven has met earth. Heaven has met earth. See, Jesus doesn't just hang on a cross and say nonsense. He hangs on a cross and he says, it is finished. And here's what he says. He says, it is finished. You're free. There's no condemnation. Your, absolute, your conscience is absolutely cleared. Oh, and by the way, you're where heaven meets earth. You're my temple. And I'm going to reside with you all the days of your life. Don't worry. It's never going to change. Then, this really cool passage in Hebrews 10. I keep forgetting about this, but I can't because I'm a dork and I like it. Anyway, okay, check this out. Where is it? I'll be all right here. Yeah, there we go. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because we're priests. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, drawing near. What are we supposed to do as we live out the rest of this life as the temple of God? We're supposed to fulfill the duties of the temple. We're supposed to be the priests that fulfill the daily worship. But we're also supposed to be a people who encourage one another to do the same. Every day of our life, that's our job. Encourage each other to do the same. You, my friends, are the temple of God. You are where heaven meets earth. And that was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, Taleo. It is finished. It's paid. It's done.